Our text is the Colossian 3 reading, the New Testament lesson. On that text, John Calvin's opening comments are as follows. Ascension goes along with resurrection. Therefore, if we are members of Christ, we must ascend into heaven. Because when he had been raised from the dead, he was received up into heaven, that he might draw us up with him. Thus far, Calvin. In short, Jesus' ascension is not a spectator sport. In his ascension, we ascend. We are with him seated at the right hand of God. Now, you should all be standing up screaming at this point because these are shocking and apparently nonsensical claims. Right? We ought not to just glide over this. This should actually disturb people. It doesn't, but it should. What precisely is the empirical evidence for these claims? I mean, you are all seated right here. I mean, nobody seems to have ascended anywhere. I mean, it seems absurd. What does it mean? How could it even be? Yet this reality is not some strange thing on the fringes of Christian existence, right? This is at the heart of the mystery of our union with Jesus Christ. It is entailed by our baptism. This is what baptism does. Properly understood, it means we're torn from this order of things and united to the new order of things in the risen Christ. But in my experience, we will not have this displacement. We will not have it. It would change everything. So instead, there's something else, some sort of spiritual sleepwalking. And so a text like this, so fundamental to Paul, has so little resonance for us. As I said, the text should produce a kind of outrage. It certainly doesn't strike us as a scandalous text or a text that would involve any dislocation. I mean, how could dying and rising from the dead and ascending with Christ possibly be disruptive? How could that possibly be disruptive to our sense of earthly rootedness? In our sense of linear time. It sounds pretty harmless, really. Dying, being raised from the dead, and ascending with Jesus. Sounds like it would leave everything pretty much intact, just make it a lot better. I mean, it's it's just a collapsing of space and time. What impact could it possibly have on our sense of place? Or our relation to things? 
So when we're not ignoring it, we tame it. We claw it back down to earth and we manage it. Because we will not undergo this inversion from earth to heaven, from this age to the age to come. It induces too much vertigo. We have, again, we have no idea what it might even mean. Or how it would even look, even if we wanted, even if we desired to do it, which we don't. So the result, the result is that we have something. But it is not the thing that radiates out from the pages of Paul's writings. It is some other thing. And that thing that radiates from Paul, that's what's before us in the text. It's one of the places in Paul where you can see it clearly. So I'm going to make the following points. They're all there on the back inside of your, uh, your bulletin. They're all about seeking the things above in one way or another. Thus, the seeker-friendly ascension. So by way of introduction, we'll talk about the already, not yet. And then the why and the when and the what and the how. These are all attempts by me to sort of walk around this thing and look at it and figure out what it means. So the already, not yet. The text begins, since then you've been raised with Christ. And verse 3 says, for you have died. So again, here's the basic Christian claim, the shape of it. Through baptism, by faith, having died with Christ, you have been raised with Christ. Notice the with, died with Christ. Again, the point here is not Jesus died and rose and you had an analogous, sort of like it, spiritual rebirth over here. What happened to him happened to us because we're united to him. But since this is so against the grain, it's so counterintuitive, I want to take a minute, just a minute, I want to be very careful to try and get it right or at least try and probe the fringes of the mystery because it seems obvious, does it not, that we have not actually died. That we are not yet bodily raised from the dead. So what is Paul talking about? So he is saying that in Jesus Christ, when by faith you are united to him, you are somehow united into his death and resurrection and by implication his ascension. And that means the center of gravity of our existence, right? the seat, the root of our personality has moved with him from earth to heaven. Now, clearly, these realities exist by faith. But faith is not fiction. They exist really. They exist actually. They exist truly, but they exist by faith. Faith is a kind of mode or a type of existence, a kind of existence. They exist by faith and not yet by sight. They also exist in an already sense and a not yet sense. Right? We have the foretaste. We talked about this last week. Not the fullness. We have the down payment, not the inheritance. We have the commencement, not the consummation. We've been lifted up to Zion. Zion has not yet descended. 
So you are now in this already mode by faith, living and moving and having your being in heaven, in the age to come, in the heavenly city, in Zion, in the Jerusalem above, in short, in the ascended Christ. Or so the New Testament describes us. Yet there's this not yet, things that are still future that can't be ignored, right? Without great distortion. We live in heaven. Our inner man is being renewed, even as Paul says, our outer man is decaying. Or as he puts it elsewhere, we're awaiting the redemption of our bodies. So we live in this new order, even while the old order, the present, what Paul calls the present evil age, is passing away. It continues to exist with the reality of sin and death and struggle, groaning, with principalities and powers that are defeated, but not yet destroyed. And so the reason I took a minute or two to to labor this is because there's a ditch on both sides here that we have to avoid falling into. On the one hand, you can end up ignoring or despising the reality and the goodness of the creation and the whole created order. As if Paul was saying something like, you can't think hard about your vocation or you can't think about changing the oil on your car. That's too much already. It doesn't account for the ways in which we are not yet raised. On the other hand, one can underestimate our risen, ascended experience with Christ. One can refuse the displacement. Right? One can deny the reality, or at least mute it. Right? That our life, our treasure, our inheritance, our affections, our citizenship... These are now all heavenly realities. That's that's having not enough of the already. So that's by way of introduction. With that, then the text. And first here, the why. So verse 1, Colossians 3, verse 1. Since you have been raised with Christ. right? Verse 3. For you have died with Christ. Notice, since, for. That's what we call the indicative, the statement about reality. The what God has done. The truth about your being in Jesus Christ. Since this is so, set your hearts or seek the things above. That's the imperative. That's the command, the exhortation. That follows from the fact that you have died and been raised and are ascended with Christ. So this text is the basic command, the basic ethical command of the Christian life. For Paul, all Christian living is a form of seeking the things that are above. Remember where this text is in the book of Colossians, right? For two chapters, Paul sets forth the glory of the transcendent Christ and your fullness in him. They're two rich chapters full of doctrine. Then he turns, at the beginning of chapter 3, is the pivot or the hinge of the book. He turns to ethics. So now he discusses the implications of this for your ethical living. So in other words, if you ask the Apostle Paul, summarize the Christian life for me as flowing out of my death and resurrection in Christ, he would say, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is. So, why do we seek the things above? Well, because that's where we are. That's where your location is. Ascension plants you there. What other things could you seek? And that's where Christ is, the text says. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Well, isn't Jesus everywhere? Isn't he in my heart? Well, yeah, he's in your heart, but he's uniquely located. That's the the point of the ascension. The locus of his presence is in heaven. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Because the text says, now this is in verse 3, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. That, by the way, is Christology, with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. In God, that's the Holy Trinity. Our very lives are bundled up with the heavenly mystery of Christ in the Holy Trinity. We are hiding in the Trinity, seeking the Trinity. The fact that this just sounds like gibberish to most American Christians is just a statement of the fact that we just don't read Paul carefully. Where is your life? In Christ and thus hidden in the Holy Trinity. What are you seeking? Christ and the Holy Trinity. Hiding in the Trinity, seeking the Trinity. Would anyone know this? So the next point is when. When do we seek the things that are above? On Sunday for an hour? The answer to this is for the whole age. Notice the text says your life will remain hidden, kept, protected, veiled, shrouded from the world until Christ who is our life appears in glory. Verse 4. Then... Not now, then you will appear with him in glory. So, when are the sons of God revealed? They're revealed when the Son of God is unveiled in glory. Until then, we are hidden with Christ in God, seeking the things that are above. The when, always, forever. What? The next thing's what? What more specifically are we seeking? It's a good question to ask ourselves, right? It's a kind of a directional question. The Christian life is about seeking the face of Christ. First and foremost, above and in and through all other things we might seek. I read that prayer from the Book of Common Prayer last week from the sixth Sunday of Easter, which marked this idea out. Intermediate things are sought for the sake of the end, and Jesus is the end. There's a kind of distillation here that has to happen, right? Psalm 27. One thing, one thing I have asked from the Lord, this only do I seek. 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, there is none upon the earth that I desire. One thing is needful, Jesus says to all the busy Marthas of the world. Jesus does not say, look, there's three or seven or 11 very necessary things, and I will help you prioritize them. There's 11 things that are really important. There's one thing that's important. There is no seeking the kingdom without a passionate, personal, inflamed seeking of the king. Right? When you seek the kingdom without seeking the king, you're turning the Christian faith into an ideology. It's a bizarre phenomenon. We want to seek the kingdom. We're not so sure we actually want to see the king. There's no seeking the benefits without seeking the benefactor, right? And that is idolatry. Seek the things above. Notice the text. It's plural. The things plural above because it's an order of things. It's an array of things. Every spiritual blessing, Paul says, every last one is yours in Christ in the heavenly places. Paul does not think you're dividing up the blessings between heavenly ones and earthly ones. He thinks every single blessing you have in Christ is heavenly. Christ and all our heavenly blessedness in Christ, those are the things above. Those are the things we're seeking. Or so the text says. Now in doing this, right, in seeking Christ and through him the triune Lord... We are clearly seeking things like the spirit, like grace, like virtue, things which impact our lives greatly here below in this order. There's no retreat here. There's no retreat. But there is something. There is something important. There's an indirection here. Right? A priority that must be honored. The earthly is never the direct object of our affections because Jesus is the direct object of our affections and he is in heaven. In seeking the heavenly, the earthly is safely and proportionately and in order and in its right place tended to. Right? There's no retreat here, but there is indirection and priority here. There should be about us a serene otherworldliness as we engage this world. Something a lot like Moses' face glowing with glory as he descended from heaven down the mountain. Let's look next at the how, how of seeking. Seek the things that are above or set your heart on the things above where Christ is. Notice in this very short passage, this alone is said twice. It's repeated for emphasis. Verse 2 says it again. Set your mind on things above. 
So I want to say two things about this. So I'm still on how. There's two things under how. First, this is a permanent, constant state. Seek or set your mind. Fix it. There's an intensity here in Paul, right? A riveting of the whole of your mind, the whole of our desire, the whole of our emotional life here, above. It's interesting, right? In Luke's gospel, when Jesus says, seek the kingdom and all these other things that the Gentiles seek, they'll be added to you. He immediately tells us what that looks like. His very next words are these. Give away your possessions. Store up treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Right? To seek the kingdom is to seek to have your heart and your treasure in heaven. So we, we cherish, we love, we aspire, we pant as the deer pants for the water to obtain the object we are seeking. Right? We pant after the things above because that's where our Christ is. And there's this fixed intensity. This is how, this is the way of seeking him. The second thing here under how is to note a contrast. It's very stark in the text. And it can't be glossed over or ignored. Notice these words. Set your mind on things above and also give due attention to the earthly things. No, no, that's our version of the text. The text is set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. We have a fantastic way of taking texts about seeking the things that are above and turning them into collapsing the tension, draining the discomfort, and just saying, oh, well, all the earthly things I seek are the way I seek the things above. Paul will not allow that. That's the not. Store up treasure in heaven, Jesus says, and also a good amount of treasure on earth. Jesus does not think we can have treasure in two places. He does not think your heart can be in both places. You will either be heavenly minded or you will be earthly minded. And attempting to be both is to be earthly minded. So again, I want to be as clear as I can here. I've already said that Paul cannot mean that you can't think hard about this worldly things. Of course, he, of course he doesn't mean that. So what then are we after? What now, we might say, does it look like? And here I want to move to the who. Who are, do we, who are we to be like in this seeking? I'm going to suggest three models that flesh this out. And they're in the order of importance, these models. So first, to cut right to the chase, it looks like Jesus' earthly life looked. In other words, Paul is just saying, here's the whole sermon in two words. Imitate Christ. Right? His whole mind, his whole will, all of his affections, his interior sight, he tells us repeatedly in John's gospel, is in unbroken heavenly communion with his father. He has about him this strange, serene, otherworldliness. He and his kingdom are not of the world. 
He's detached. He's almost ironic toward the power structures and the politicians of his day. He loves people. He uses things. But his affection and his desire, he tells us plainly, is not only to glorify the Father, but to return to the glory that he had with the Father before the world was and to bring us there. And to that end, which frames his whole existence, he teaches and he suffers and he gathers his sheep so that they might share this glory. Right? His treasure, as he taught us, was not on earth, but was in heaven. Right? He is the displaced one from his homeland in God, returning to his homeland in God. He is the model for Christian existence in the world. This is why it was inevitable. If it didn't happen, we would have to invent it. That a culture in the third and fourth century, a monastic culture, arose. It arose because people wanted to imitate Jesus. He was single. He was poor. He said, blessed are those who become eunuchs for the kingdom. He said, sell your possessions. These things sound strange in Protestant ears. The the rise of that whole sort of culture was an attempt to radically follow Jesus and imitate and take seriously and in a weighty fashion the stuff he plainly says. It looks like him. Secondly, it looks like Paul. Paul is an, it had to happen, eschatological man. He, He belongs to By the way, this is a commonplace, right? I mean, any scholarship or literature on the Apostle Paul makes this point, that what you're confronted with here is an eschatological man, a man who lives out of the future, which has arrived in Christ. How could it be otherwise? The spirit which he's received is a down payment of the future inheritance. The spirit, Paul says, causes us to groan for the end. So, Beloved, it's important to see this. The Spirit does not unite us who remain here below to a Jesus who sits above with whom we can have a sort of supernatural Skype session. The Spirit unites us to Christ crucified, risen, raised, and ascended, and the Spirit, as Calvin said when I opened, drags us up after him. Or so it should be. In the core of his being, by faith, Paul actually lives above where Christ is. For him to live is Christ. He makes tents, right? He makes tents. He cares for the churches. But make no mistake, his affections, his mind, his heart are not divided between earth and heaven. If they were, he'd be the world's biggest hypocrite. He lives in heaven and he longs to depart thence. To die is gain. This is why Paul cannot even pray in the opening parts of numerous of his letters without getting to, so that you will stand blameless on the day of Christ. The so that, which is missing from all of our prayers, is shot through the beginning of his prayers. So, 
Paul has suffered the dislocation, the displacement of this text. He looks and he smells and he feels different from every Christian I have ever met, including me, (laughs) first off. I mean, to have one's nose shoved into his text and then to look into my own heart is like tumbling from heaven to earth into some shadowy lowlands. And Paul does not leave us in doubt as to what this seeking looks like. He gives you diagnostic tests. He tells us plainly. And here we're getting to the rub. 1 Corinthians 7. Let those who are married be as if they were not married. There's a text on nobody's refrigerator. Right? I mean, it's embarrassing. Let those, he goes on, same, same verse. Let those who buy and sell be as if they did not buy and sell. There's a text in no textbook on Christian economics. Right? Let those who mourn be as if they did not mourn. These are Paul's words. Let those who rejoice be as if they did not rejoice. You know what he's after here? You know, what, you know why this knife gets way down in there and cuts? Because here's what he wants. Holy, H-O-L-Y, holy detachment. A sober realization. A distinction between what is temporal and what is eternal. And marriages are temporal. And buying and selling is ephemeral. Houses and lands and children and institutions. The rulers of the age, they're all fleeting. Like existence itself in this age, they are a puff of smoke. A vapor. Everything we touch, everything we can see, everything we build, everything we labor on, even as we are laboring on it, is slipping through our hands. And it's a profound folly to live as if this isn't the case. Again, again, we are called to engage and to labor wisely and well in these realms. But the beginning of holy wisdom is holy detachment. This is what we mean when we talk about order and proportion. Paul sees the landscape right. Using things as if we did not use them. That is the paradox and mystery of the Christian's engagement with stuff. That means we use them with open hands. We hold everything loose. We don't grasp the vapor. We don't idolatrously cling to things which we cannot keep. And that kind of engagement is at the heart of what it means to be ascended with Christ and still living there. Put differently, the Christian life is not living centered in this world with heavenly aid from Jesus. 
though that is the dominant model. The Christian life is existence, affection, mind, will, treasure, citizenship, hope, inheritance, all in heaven where Christ is. And then, from there, with holy detachment and heavenly discernment and purified love engaging the world. That's the indirection. That's the dislocation. Now again, I don't think it's one that and I speak for myself, that we're willing to undergo. We'll go back to regularly scheduled programming. The third example of this, closer to home perhaps, to try and illustrate the point. We are like one who has a deeply beloved spouse and a deeply loved family that they cherish, who finds home to be a haven, a taste of the glory which is to come. And who nevertheless has to travel internationally on business. Right? We do our work. We do it well. Indeed, we excel at it. Not in spite of, but because of our affection and our deep attachment and our longing for and our rootedness in our home. We don't confuse the world outside and our home for our actual home. We live indirectly in this age as strangers and aliens whose homeland is elsewhere, whose very existence, the text says, is elsewhere. But that is no disadvantage. Do you know what it means? It means we are light in the world, but we are light that is refracted back into the world from heaven. Like that's the difference in the tone and the texture of one kind of light and the tone and the texture of Pauline light. Paul is light that is refracted back into the world from heaven, from the future. It is not a disadvantage. This is the only way to be transcendent, heavenly illumination in the world. This is how we build, following Jesus and Paul, the kingdom of heaven. Christ is ascended, and you are ascended, vertically departed with him, and your life is hidden with him in God. Seek then the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Amen.